Today we are going to continue our relationships uh, titled Enemies and Frenemies and Friends. Next week is our concluding message on this series. It's called, I Just Want to Be Left Alone. Uh, I would encourage you to come out for that. How many of you have enemies? Yeah, you know, I, I did an inventory of my own life, and I, I couldn't really think of many enemies. I couldn't really think of many people that I would call enemies. Now, of course, you know, we as a nation, we have enemies. We have people who are out to get us and want to destroy us, and that's just a reality of the, the world that we live in. I had enemies in high school. I had enemies in college. There were people that I really disliked, and there were people that I was opposed to. But, you know, as I think about it now, as I fall more in love with Jesus, my enemy list kind of decreases and decreases. Isn't that odd how that works sometimes? The more you love Jesus, the, the fewer your enemies get. But I want you to take a step back and look at the larger picture. And look at the perspective that I have brought to you several times, uh, nearly every week of this series, but nearly every week prior to this series as well. The perspective of the sinful nature. That we have these self-reigning hearts, right? We have these self-reigning hearts that are really just consumed with our own self, that we are consumed with our own self-interest and our, our own self-gratification. And we do all that we can to rule our own lives, to sit on the seat of authority over our own lives, to reign our own lives. But the thing about the, the sinful nature is that we don't only want to reign over our own lives and rule over our own lives, but we also want to rule over everybody else's life. And the thing is that I might have this perspective as someone with a sinful nature, and you have this perspective, perspective as someone with a sinful nature, and there's clashing, because you don't want me to rule over your life, and I don't want you to rule over my life. And so when I have these expectations of you that you don't want to meet, then resentment builds, and bitterness builds, and anger builds. When I expect something of you, and you don't want to do it, when I want you to do something, or force you to do something, and you don't want to do it, then all of a sudden we have these enemies. Or... We go online to Facebook and we look at all of our friends who are having these incredible times in like Cancun and Aruba. We go online and like our friends are getting these jobs that we wish we had. And they're moving into the houses that we wished we lived in. And all of a sudden we become envious. And with a sinful nature that says it's all about me and you are by fault my enemy, therefore. Wow, envy is the beginning of resentment and envy is the beginning of bitterness and envy is the beginning of all the chaos that we find in our households. And so look back from the larger perspective, and all of a sudden, i got a lot of enemies. There's a lot of people who are in my way of getting what I want. There's a lot of people who are my enemies. And some of these enemies we call friends. And some of these enemies we call family. Some of these enemies we call frenemies. And so what do we do about it? What do we do with this reality? We're going to jump into um, a portion of Scripture in just a moment. It's uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It's one of the most pas- uh, famous passages in all of Scripture, probably. If you've never read it, my first challenge to you is to go home today and read Matthew 5 through 7. If you've never read Jesus' words on the Mount, then go home, read Matthew 5 through 7. Dwell on them, think about them, pray about them, and then come back with any questions you might have about what they mean. At some point in the future, we'll do a whole series uh, going verse by verse of that section. But today, I want to use this as a unifying theme for us. That's an upside-down house. I want you to keep this picture in mind as we talk about this message for today. And really, as we go into the Sermon on Mount in the future, think about this image as we do that. There's a lot of houses like this in the world. 
This was the first one to be built that was upside down. A lot of them, a lot of tourist attractions. We were in Gatlinburg earlier uh, this year, and uh, there was an upside down house there. There's one in Wisconsin Dells. A lot of tourist attractions build upside down houses. This was the first one to be built, though. It was built in the 1970s, and it was built as a statement, not as a tourist attraction. It was built as a statement about communism and the current state of the world. It took 114 days to build. It, was, it took five times longer than expected because the workers kept suffering from dizziness. They kept getting sick and they were confused, so they had to take breaks to recover. So it took five times longer to build this house than they had expected. Today, the house basically functions as a tourist attraction, ironically. But visitors oftentimes complain of sickness as they go into it. They often complain of dizziness after just being in this house for just a few minutes. The house was constructed as a visual symbol of the topsy-turviness, the upside-downness of the world, and the people who go into it get sick. And like this house, the world is kind of like that, don't you think? The world is kind of upside-down. It's topsy-turvy. It's not as it should be. Do you guys feel that? Do you guys feel that in the world? The topsy-turviness of it all? That things that are, that things that should not be are, and things that should be are not? You guys ever feel that? Do you guys ever feel that injustice wins over justice? Do you guys ever feel that hate shouts louder than love? That brokenness exists as our reality rather than wholeness? That fear and anxiety and trial and pain outweigh trust and hope and healing at times? Do you guys ever feel that death overcomes life? We live in an upside down world. And this, in part, is what Jesus is hoping to communicate on his Sermon on the Mount. But he goes further by saying that not only are we to be right-side-up type people, we are to be the ones who live right-side-up rather than upside-down, but that he actually has come to prove what that is like. And so, in other words, Jesus' words are actually a description of who he is on the Sermon on the Mount. And as Matthew has already stated, that Jesus is the Emmanuel, the God with us. Jesus' words on the Sermon on the Mount are a beautiful description of who God is. This is how God functions in the world. This is who God is. You want to know what God is like? Read the Sermon on the Mount. That is a great description of who God is. And so remember that the gospel of Jesus Christ that we just talked about, it's not good advice. It's good news. He's not simply gathering all these people around him and telling them how they should behave, although he is partly doing that. The gospel is good news. Jesus has opened up this new way of being human in the world. A right-side-up type way of being human. And he has not only modeled what this was supposed to be like, but he has created a way that we can actually begin to do it. And so he's not just puffing us up with these words and say, Hey, love your enemies. He's not just saying these things. He's actually created a way for us that allows us to do it. And by his Holy Spirit, he has empowered us to actually do what he is calling us to do. And so this message is really about discovering who God is. The Sermon on the Mount is really about dis- discussing who God is and discovering who God is. And if you remember, that's really what this whole series is about. This whole series on relationships, it's about discovering who God is and learning to function like God in our world. Amen? Amen. How are you guys doing with that, by the way? Find it challenging at times? Function like God functions in our world? It's a challenge, isn't it? Let's continue. So a portion of Jesus' teaching on the mount says this. You've heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. 
And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. You guys want to go on? Father in heaven, we need your insight this morning. More desperately, perhaps, than, uh, than any other morning, Father, we need your insight to understand your hard words your challenging words, Father. This is an incredible description of who you are. And you have called us to be like you in this world, Father. Not only have you called us to do that, but you have created a way and you have empowered us to do that. So God, may we be a people who are submitting and surrendering to you. Open our eyes, open our ears to receive these words, and may you do your good work in us. Amen. So you have heard that it was said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Now, you need to understand that Jesus' audience during the Sermon on the Mount in particular included both Gentiles, uh, which are non-Jewish people, but also Jews. And so when he's talking about this law, this you have heard that it was said, he's referring to everybody. Everybody has heard this law. We've heard this law as well. We may not have heard these literal words, but we see it all the time. Every time we turn on our television, we see this law in, in, in place. Every time we go to the movies, we see this law in place. Hollywood has made billions of dollars throughout the millions of movies it's made by using revenge as a theme. How many of you guys turn on the television and you watch the show Revenge? Or you see that revenge and retaliation is a very common theme that we see everywhere in the world. And so Jesus says, you have heard that it was said. It's everywhere. This is the way that the world works. Now this law, you might call it the law for tit for tat. It's quite literally the oldest law in the world. It predates the writing of the Old Testament by a thousand years. It was written in the code of Hammurabi, a Babylonian law code in 2285 BC. And the Jews were familiar with it because God included it in his book of the Exodus. It says this, You are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Now, a lot of people, very much including yourself perhaps, look at this and they say, wow, that's a bloodthirsty, unjust God who wrote this law. I can't believe he would encourage his people to do this. But I want you to step back and consider three things before you begin to call God merciless and unjust. First and most importantly, this law was given to actually mitigate violence, not to encourage it. When I was in fourth grade, I got into my first fight. You guys ever been in a fight before in uh, grade school or, or high school? I got in my first fight. I'd only been in one other one, by the way. That was later in seventh grade. But in first fight, I got, uh, it was in fourth grade. About a week prior to this fight, I called uh, a, a boy in my class a name. A very foolish thing for me to do and an uh, un- unkind thing for me to do. But he eventually caught wind that I had called him this name. And instead of calling me a name back, what does he do? He grabs his two closest friends together and he jumps me after school one day. I called him a name. I got beat up. 
That's the way the world works, my friends. Think of a tribal society, like the ancient Jews who received this law. If one person in a tribe is injured, it's not that one person that's going to retaliate. It's the entire tribe that's going to say, let's go after the entire tribe that injured you. It's an ancient version of a Sharks and Jets, West Side Story. One shark is offended, so all the sharks go after all the jets who offended the one shark. Think of a man who was in a fight, and in the process, he loses his tooth. Well, his natural response is not to knock out the other tooth of the other person, but to to, to break the jaw of the other person. Or think of a person who is in a fight, and they get a cut on their arm. Well, the natural response is not to cut the other arm, but to stab the other guy through. Think of a guy who loses an eye in a fight. Well, his response is not to, to gash out the other guy's eye. It's to, it's to beat him to the, you know, an inch of death. This law was given to mitigate vengeance, not to encourage it. It says that only those who commit the injury must be punished, and their punishment must be equivalent to the injury that they inflicted. Now, secondly, however, this law never gave individual private citizens the right to extract vengeance. This law wasn't given to individuals. It was given to a court of law so that they could justly procure penalties and to divide out punishment. This law never gave individuals the right to avenge a wrongdoer. And thirdly, this law was never, except in the case of death, rendered literally. Exodus continues, If a man hits a manservant or a maidservant in the eye and destroys it, he must let the servant go free to compensate for the eye. And so you strike your slave in the face and he loses an eye. What value is it to the slave that you now are to lose your eye? Does that help the slave's life out much? Retribution might feel good a little bit on the inside, but it doesn't help the slave in his life. And so instead, the law court developed a system that could enact this law literally. Did not, it did not enact this law literally, but rather made monetary compensation for the loss of injury. And they had this entire system to develop what was appropriate compensation for the loss of injury. So this law is one for equality and for the mitigating of vengeance. You know, but Jesus goes one step forward. He says that if this law to mitigate vengeance is done in the way that you have heard it done, it is still being done in an upside-down world. This is not tipping the world back on its head. You've heard that it was said by an upside-down world how retribution needs to be fair. But I tell you that a right-side-up type person does not resist an evildoer. Oppressors and dictators would love for us to say, hey, you're just, you're just called by your God to lay down your arms, to surrender, to pacify. But this term, resist or antisthenomai, which is the Greek equivalent of it, means retaliation or revenge. Jesus does not deny that evil persons are evil. He does not deny that, that evil persons' actions are evil. He does not condone their behavior. But what he does not allow is that we retaliate against those who wrong us. Vengeance is God. God will do justly what he determines to do wisely in the world. And so we are not like the upside-down world that retaliates when we are wronged. We are not like the upside-down world that fights back and pushes back. We are right-side-up type people. And so your response is not to be retaliation, but to be love. 
Paul wrote to the Romans, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Because in doing this, you will, reap, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not, overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so what is unique about love in this context in particular is that it is never passive. Love is not a passive action to be done. It always reveals evil, and love always prompts the conscience of the evildoer. That is what is so beautiful about love, is that it heaps burning coals on evildoers' heads. It shames them, and it guilts them. And so love, in other words, is the very beginning of every restorative process. And so you want restoration in your household? You want peace in your household? You want restoration in your relationships and peace in your relationships? Love is always the beginning of the restorative process. Love is always the answer to the, to the restorative process. Love is always the answer to when someone fights back. And so when he gives three examples of what this might look like, and there are an infinite number of examples. I, he, he gives three, but I don't know what situation is going on in your life where your enemy is after you and you need to respond. But here is what Jesus says in regards to three examples. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Now a lot of people think that turning the other cheek means to ignore the situation, to ignore the problem. But that is a very passive approach to a solution, and that never ends well for either party. Love is an incredible active thing. And so Jesus says, why don't you try loving someone and see what happens? Now, to slap someone on the right cheek was not an act of violence. It was an act of insult. It is saying, you are below me, like in their day, you're like a dog or a slave or a child or a woman. To slap you on the right cheek is like saying that to them. And so to turn your cheek to say, hey, you've hit me on the right cheek as an insult, but now I'm going to turn to you my left. You can't slap me on my left hand. You have to punch me. Do it again if you must. Strike me again if you must, but do it now as your equal. I'm not below you. I have more integrity than that. Do it now as your equal. Now you could strike him. You could continue the cycle of violence and vengeance and retaliation. Or you could realize that love reveals the evil. A turning of the cheek reveals the evil and the inequality, and it calls the evil doer to reflect on his own situation and the whole situation of the human race. Jesus continues that if someone sues you for some huge debt and demands the shirt off your back, give him also your cloak, he says. Now most people, because of their economic condition, only had these two articles of clothing. So to willingly give up your garments exposes you to great shame as it reveals your nakedness. Now think about this, you're standing in a poor Palestinian village and some rich man, the man who has several articles of clothing comes and he sues you for some debt that you owe him. He says, you don't have anything to give me, so give me the shirt off your back. He's already rich, right? This guy has plenty of clothing. He doesn't need a shirt. But the injustice of it all, give him the shirt off your back, but don't only just give him the shirt, give him the cloak off your back. Think about that. You're standing in the street and all these people are saying, why is this rich man forcing this man to give him your clothes? 
Why is this rich man telling this poor man to strip naked in the streets? You know how shameful that is in an honoring society? It's going to speak very poorly of the rich man within an honor and shame society that he is forcing you to take all of your clothing. You could cry in embarrassment and pity. You could wail in the streets or you could realize that love reveals the evil. And it calls this man to responsibility. And if a Roman soldier demands you to carry his gear for one mile, willingly carry it too. There was a law in place that a Roman soldier had the right to force any civilian to carry his gear up to one mile. But the law was very strict. You could carry it one mile, but you could carry it no further. And so Jesus says, when this happens, don't fume and kick and plot revenge, but rather carry it an additional mile. The Roman soldier, once you get to that mile marker, he's going to tell you to stop carrying the gear. He's going to tell you to put it down. And if you insist on carrying it, he's going to get into trouble. It's going to open his eyes to the injustice. It's going to open his eyes to the reality that this system is unjust. And so your willingness to love will actually shame him and force him to realize what he is actually doing in this situation. Love is always the beginning of the restorative process. But you also need to realize that many people who are met with love are not going to lay down their conflict. They're not going to lay down oppression just because you met them with love. A lot of people are actually going to be more spiteful because you met them with love. A lot of people might retaliate more because you met them with love. Having people realize their injustice, having people realize their shame, usually doesn't sit well with people who are too bent in on themselves. And so they may retaliate more. But in the end, what you might realize is that it may not create a restorative process in their heart, but it's going to create a restorative process in yours. When someone confronts you with opposition or anger, insult or injustice, you can either continue the cycle of living in this broken and sick upside-down world by retaliating and doing as the world does, or you can love and begin the restorative process of healing and flipping the world on its end. Flipping the world upside down. How many of your households need to be flipped upside down? How many of your individual lives need to be flipped upside down so that they're right side up? Do you guys feel the sickness? Do you guys feel the tension? Do you guys feel the chaos of living in this upside down world? We can either continue that cycle or through our love we can begin to turn the world on its head. Jesus continues with a capstone statement regarding retaliation in an upside-down world. It's a very classic section of Scripture. He says, This is what the right-side-up type of people are like. You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now they have excavated um, and discovered numerous places throughout the world where ancient prayer stones were written. They call these curse tablets because by far the most common form of prayer are curses on enemies. People would approach a priest and they would pay a certain amount of money and they would approach the priest by saying, I'm going to inscribe on this stone 
a curse that I want to befall upon my enemy. This guy's hurt me in this way, therefore I want this type of thing to happen to him. One of them reads as follows, I invoke you, holy angels and holy names, tie up, block, strike, overthrow, harm, destroy, kill, and shatter Eucharos, the charioter, and all his horses tomorrow in the arena in Rome. Let the starting gates not open properly. Let him not compete quickly. Let him not pass. Let him not take the turn properly. Let him not receive the honors. Let him not come from behind to pass, but instead let him collapse. Let him be bound. Let him be broken up, and let him drag behind both in the early racers and the latter ones. Now, now, quickly, quickly, let it be so. To love your enemy, it's, it's unconventional. Our conventional wisdom says, hate your enemies, love your neighbors, love those who are good to you. Kings and philosophers for thousands of years have promoted this mentality. It is natural default of living in an upside world upside-down world, to love our neighbors and to hate our enemies. But the right-side-up people of Jesus are called, rather, to love our enemies and pray for those who hurt us. So you must first realize that love in Scripture, it's never a feeling. Jesus isn't asking that we just feel good about our enemies, that we have these nice, kind thoughts towards them. It's never a feeling. It never begins with a feeling Saying that love is primarily a feeling in our modern implications has done horrible things to marriages. Saying that love is just a feeling has done horrible things to households. It's created this horrible mentality as we deal with people because when that feeling fades, guess what? I'm out of here. Love is a choice made to consider the life of another more important than your own. Love is a choice of preference for others before myself. Remaining the self-reigning heart, remember that? It's saying, I'm going to lay down the self-reigning heart and I'm going to promote you above myself. Love is a choice to see all people unconditionally and to treat them in a manner of grace and mercy, forgiveness, honor, respect, and dignity, irrespective of what they look like, how they treat you, how they behave in this world, what they smell like, whatever. I will treat you a superior above my own, simply because you are worthy of that love. If you categorize your love and only extend it to those who are, in your estimation, deserving of it, i.e. your neighbors, as Jesus says, then all of your love is negated and you are not acting as children of God, Jesus says. Because God does not look on the world and sends the rain only on the people he likes. Wouldn't that be weird if we were to look out in the neighborhood and we could see little rain clouds above the, uh, the people that we knew God liked? A lot of dry, a lot of dry uh, grasses out there, a lot of dry lawns out there. He doesn't just send the sunshine on the people that he likes, people that he approves of. He does not show favoritism. He does not treat us conditionally. He loves all, and therefore we are called to love all. He died for all, therefore we are called to likewise die to ourselves for all. If you, only lo- if you only love those who love you, Jesus says, if all you do is act like the tax collectors and the pagans, if you are content to live in this upside-down world where sickness and hurt and crying and pain and brokenness and anger and hostility and chaos rule, if that's what you want your household to feel like, if that's what you want your household to look like, if that's what you want your life to live like, then do as the pagans do. 
Love only those who will love you. Love only those who you think are worthy of your love. Love only those who it is convenient to love. Love only those who you think will benefit your life. Love only those who you think will love you in return. Live like the world does and you will experience chaos in your households. Live like the world does and you will continue the cycle of anger in your relationships. Live like the world does and you will continue to live and trudge through the chaos that comes with living in a fallen, sinful world. But you can end that cycle by loving your enemies. Because if you want to be like Jesus, if you want to be like God, if you want to function like God functions in this world, if you want peace in your household, if you want peace in your relationships, if you want to be restored, then be perfect. Now, Jesus is not expecting us to be perfect in morality. He understands and recognizes very fully that we are sinners and that we cannot live up to a perfect standard. But what he's saying is that strive, strive, strive. Be full in your love for others. Love the Lord your God with all, that word all, your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He wants consistency in our love. So where are you guys at this morning? How were your households this morning? How was the peace within your heart this morning? Who are your enemies that you need to forgive? Who are the people that you need to pursue in love rather than pursue with harsh words or hurtful feelings towards them? Who have you said a harsh word to that you need to repent of and in love apologize instead of offering furthering hurtful words to encourage them, perhaps? Who have you chosen to favor at the expense of others? In what ways has your natural response been to retaliate when you were wronged? In what ways has the natural response of you been to push back when you were pushed or to fight back when someone fights against you? Is the revenge the mode in which you function this morning? Are you looking to hurt your enemies in a similar or more harsh way than they have injured you? In what ways do you fail to function like God functions in this world? Now you might be thinking, man, Ross, it's too hard. It's, it's, it's an impossible task that you are calling me to do. I, I don't know any other way but to react in the same way that the world reacts. I, I, I don't know how to be patient amidst anger. I don't know how to be gentle amidst rudeness. I don't know how to do that, Ross. In an upside-down world, the default and the natural way to react against our enemies is to oppose them with retaliation. It's to fight back. It's to push back. But remember that this message is not just good news. Jesus isn't, or it's not just uh, good advice. Jesus isn't just giving us good advice about how to live in the world. It's good news. This is a description of how God acts in the world. This is a description of who God is and how he functions. And not only has he 
told us and called us to be a new type of human and a right-side-up type of humanity, but he has created a way so that we can actually begin to do this. It's not just a lot of hot air coming out of his mouth. He has created a way for us to actually begin to love our enemies. Do you guys believe that? You know, when Jesus was spat on, when Jesus was insulted by the Jews, not a word came out of his mouth. When the Romans mocked him and they placed a purple robe on him and they put a crown of thorns on his head and they, and they pounded with their staff the crown of thorns into his skull, he did not retaliate. He did not fight back. He met their insults with grace. He met their slander with mercy. He met the injustice with love. When they placed a cross on his back, he carried it. When they nailed him to the cross, he prayed for them. Do you guys think you can do it? Because if you don't, then Jesus will for you. And if you lay down your life and say, Jesus, I can't do this, and you open up your heart to receiving him, then he will begin to do it in you. This world we live in is an upside-down world, and when we are insulted and threatened, beaten and cursed, the natural default of an upside-down world is to retaliate. But we are a right-side-up people. And some of us are still slanted. I get that. We're still working our way to being right-side-up people, but Jesus will continue to work in you if you let him. And so my challenge to you is to allow Jesus to do that in you. Not just as a model, but by his power, by his Holy Spirit, to begin to work in you so that you can begin to love your enemies. Amen? Amen. Why don't you please stand for the benediction. Restoration Church, the reality is we do live in a hostile world, a world that is looking to threaten us and beat us up, condemn us and fight against us all the time. It's looking to do this. I don't know what the situations are in your household, in your workplace, in your family. But I do know that if you continue that cycle of revenge, retaliation against those who fight against you, nothing good will happen. There will be no peace. There will be no shalom. There will be no restoration within your household. If you need that, if you want that in your household, if you want that in your own personal life, then it begins now by trusting the one who loves his enemies. And he will begin to work in you so that you too can love your enemies. Amen? Go in peace. God bless you all. Thank you so much.